All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest. His name is Jonathan Mitchell. Now, he actually, his book popped up on my Amazon feed when I was researching other books. And it was, the title of his book is Before Son of Sam, The Submerged History of a Yonkers Cult. I read it, took notes. And uh, it was interesting because I'd seen it before I even talked to Manny Grossman about kind of some of the background of the Son of Sam. And I also read Wicked King Wicker, or interviewed the writer of Wicked King Wicker, Michael Benson, this year, and then did a show with uh, Roberta Glass called on the Sons of Sam documentary. So I know a little bit of background, and I haven't read The Ultimate Evil in a long time, but I really need to read it again. But Jonathan has done an excellent job of kind of looking past some of the cover stories of the Son of Sam and really kind of researching the past. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him about his book. So Jonathan Mitchell, are you there? Yes. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the inter interview. This isn't your only book. You published this one February 2020, but you also did a fictional kind of version inspired by Son of Sam, if, if my memory serves me correct, titled The Agent. And then you were in included in kind of a compilation of fictional writing titled Kitchen Sink Gothic too, right? That's right. Yes. And so can you talk or tell the audience how, what piqued your interest in this Son of Sam and, and your kind of unique look at uh, the events, be, like the historical events behind the Sons of Sam deaths? Yes, absolutely. I, I read Maury's book about 25 years ago and um, was really interested in it, found it fascinating. And I, um, I thought he had done all the research that needed to be done because it, you know, you pick up, it's a big book and it, it, it seems pretty exhaustive. Um, but then a couple of years ago, I, Maury, as, as a lot of the viewers probably know, used a lot of uh, aliases for different figures in the cult. And uh, I think everybody reads the book and, and is left wondering who, you know, what are the actual identities of these people? Mr. Real Estate, uh, people like that, uh, code names for, for leaders of the cult. So uh, here and there, I would do a Google search, you know, just um, seeing if I could find clues to any of the, the true identities of these people. And I found a site called SOS Cult. This was, I guess, in late 2018, maybe. Um, it, it's it's one of those, uh, I don't know what the, it's it's, it was on the web brain uh, hosting site. So what you had was like a, a large chart of names and, and often photographs to go with them, but no text. So suddenly late one evening, I had discovered all these names and photos, but I didn't know how they fit together, what the, the roles of these people were in the cult. Um, so I started to do, a little newspaper research. Um, and after about a year, I had, you know, piled up a list of names and notes and references to these people in, in mostly New York state newspapers. Um, and I put the booklet together and I've updated it since then, you know, uh, when it became obvious that there was an error somewhere in the book, I wanted to correct it and um, make sure that I had drawn the reader's attention to it. So, the book has been updated a little bit since last February, and I've added a few pages here and there and some some notations and stuff. But um, mainly what I wanted to do was um, put a narrative together where 
previously there had only been photos and names. Uh, so I tried to give credit everywhere that I could give credit where I could find an actual name of a researcher who had, uh, you know, put information together. And I just wanted to uh, initially for myself and then for other people, just, just put a coherent uh, narrative together of times and places and people. And, uh, you know, where I make a supposition or a, a working hypothesis, I tried to make it clear that that's what it was that I didn't have, you know, the final word on this or that situation. Uh, so I've, uh, it, it, by necessity, a, a lot of this kind of writing is speculative. So I tried to underscore that for the reader as much as possible. Uh, I mean, we, we definitely, we have names and photos of people who, who unquestionably were involved, but sometimes you have to kind of fill in the blanks as far as situations go where, you know, crimes that they were involved in or, or um, you know, specific events, um, you, you have to do some writing and some supposition to, to connect all the dots. So, and you went, you went through what the Herald Statesman, I think was one of the uh, newspapers that you mentioned. Yeah. Did you, yeah, that, was, sing that, that was a big help. It, it was really so much of the story. And I think Manny referred to this too, in, in your interview with him, so much of the story unfolded there um, publicly. Hey Jess. Um, and it, it, not, not the whole story, but for people who knew what to look for, a, a lot of the story actually appeared in the newspaper. And it's a really interesting thing about the Herald Statesman is that I believe it was more or less common knowledge in Yonkers that David Berkowitz had not acted alone. People knew that there was a pre-existing cult in Yonkers where Berkowitz lived and that there had been a lot of um, strange activity in the years from uh, even Maury Terry, who was sort of loath to get into the, the details of the group uh, prior to the Son of Sam killings, said that it had been active for at least two decades. Right before Son of Sam even started. So so really Son of Sam was was just, uh, it was the tip of a very large iceberg. Right, and you mentioned all that stuff in your, in your book. I mean, what is this that kind of goes back, you talk about some of these names and something that I really hadn't seen, the Oculist Society. So the kind of these secretive uh, groups that are associated with this Son of Sam cult. Can you talk a little bit about that background that you mentioned? Yeah, and I, I forget exactly how I came across the uh, Enlightened Society of Oculists. Um, I read on the SOS cult page, um, there was a, a page with just a, a group of doctors' names, Yonkers, physicians. Several of them were, were eye doctors. There were ophthalmologists and optometrists, and there was the name of one doctor named uh, Harry Harnish. He was an optometrist in Yonkers in the 1920s and early 30s. And uh, I didn't know why his name would pop up in connection with the investigation, you know, being so long before the, the, the Sam killings. Um, but I started to find interesting items in the Herald Statesman about Dr. Harnish. 
and he called himself an oculist. He insisted on that. That was clearly the the distinction that he preferred as as opposed to optometrist or, you know. So I got to wondering why he he called himself that a term that was already sort of becoming antique by the by the mid nineteen twenties, and then somewhere in in the course of searching for his name and his history. I ran across this article about the Great Enlightened Society of Oculists. They were an offshoot of the Freemasons, and allegedly um, they were supposed to have established a lodge in the United States sometime in the 1700s. And I wondered if Dr. Harnish might be connected somehow to the society. Um, they had mystical traditions, you know, being pretty directly adapted from the, the Freemasons as they were. Um, but they also believed that they could cure uh, any disease of the eye. Dr. Harnish was very insistent that he, um, he could treat people of all ages and backgrounds and this kind of, he offered to treat, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the eyes of uh, school children in in the entire uh, Yonkers school system for free and it was 1921 22 something like that so he he clearly believed in his abilities as a as an eye surgeon an eye doctor and this seemed to reflect some of the same values that the society of oculists had and i don't have any definitive connection or or evidence that he was a member of this society, but I wondered, given his training as an optometrist and his zeal to treat people, if, if he might not have a membership with this group in his background somewhere. Even when he went to prison later in 1930, he offered to treat all the the uh, eye disorders of, of all the, the prisoners while he was in Sing Sing prison. So he, he, uh, um, he lost his license to practice, of course, but, but he, even while in prison, he was a very zealous, um, optometrist. Well, was, it, <laughs> was, was, it, was it he, or was it Johan and you mentioned who were doing illegal abortion? So they were definitely skirting, uh, the law if they were yeah. doing that. Yeah. I, I believe that was Dr. Johannan. Yeah. He, he was a general practitioner in Yonkers at the same time that, that uh, Dr. Harnish was an optometrist there. And uh, we don't get the entire story in the paper, of course, because they were trying to be as delicate about it as possible. But um, it, it sounds as if Dr. Harnish got a young girl, maybe 13 or 14, pregnant, then took her to Dr. Yohannan to perform the abortion. Uh, Dr. Yohannan managed to maintain his practice when he got out of, he, he, he only did a sentence of, I don't know, I think six or eight months or something in the county jail. Uh, Dr. Harnish's sentence was stiffer and he had lost his license to practice by the time he got out. Gotcha. And how, and there was like, there were always stories within Maury Terry that there were doctors and lawyers, like, uh, right. you know, skilled professionals were involved in the cult. And right. right. So there, and there was also stories of like child trafficking and things like that. Can you talk about that and, and some of the stories of like child murder and things? Yeah, the, there, 
this recurs throughout the, the history of this this group as we find that that um, that maybe the mysticism and later the the overt Satanism was a veneer for criminal activity and that child uh, exploitation and child trafficking was the main activity, but also there were drugs and there was uh, weapons trafficking and smuggling and um, they they were into a little bit of everything, but but yeah, um, the the really fantastic team I work with, Jess D and, and Manny Grossman, uh, they have uncovered tons of, of evidence of child trafficking, uh, really horrible activities that went on in Untermeyer Park in Yonkers, also Van Cortland Park in the Bronx, and some other locations. Um, just just really just the sickest stuff that this group engaged in. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, they were alleged to have been, uh, there was some mysticism, some ritual activity. They were always into children. Um, and then sometime in the, the very late 60s or early 70s, allegedly a, a, a more openly violent uh more unambiguously satanic element took over the leadership of the group, or at least aligned itself with the pre-existing group. We're not sure exactly how or, or at what point that happened, but allegedly it had happened anyway by the early 70s. So right. it kind of coincided with the growth of the Process Church and the movement yeah. of the Process Church kind of to that area. I mean, outside, north outside of downtown New York, right? Was there can't remember where their main headquarters in New York were, but I'm just positive that DeGrimston at some point lived in, who was the head of the process, lived in New York. That's right. It, well, in 1972, the Process Church uh, bought a house in Pound Ridge, Pound Ridge that's right. County. So the DeGrimstons were living there evidently a couple of years before they separated uh, in 1974. Um, and then then the involvement of the process gets a little more murky from there because there were different offshoots, different branches. Uh, people had, I guess, theological or philosophical disagreements. And um, uh, but but yeah, the process was around in Westchester County from at least 1972. Yeah, at least right. And I mean, I think Manson said, or infamously said, "Me and DeGrimston are one." Kind of like a, a play on you know, Christ saying me and my father are one and the same. He kind of did that too. And uh, there's definitely some process influence on the, in the Manson family, but the process element, I think you said that it was confirmed that a high ranking process member was at meetings at Untermeyer Park. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And again, our, um, it, you know, the extent of the connection with the process, I'm not sure how deep it went. Well, but I can tell you this, it. they definitely emphasized the German Shepherd breed and moved on after and became Best Friend Society. So they were definitely interested in animals. And so that German Shepherd element was in this Yonkers cult. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Oh, it, definitely, definitely. And maybe as far back as the 1920s. Again, that's that's something that I make just passing reference to in the booklet. Uh, there's no conclusive proof, but there are odd incidents here and there throughout the decades that indicate that that maybe 
the cult had had always been interested in you know what what the interest in german shepherds was i i don't know i don't know what that had to do with their rituals or their theology it's it's hard to say uh but but the process were definitely um this was a breed that that they were interested in too and yeah the the um the, the member of the church that we know in fact he was a founding member and and a member of the original inner circle of 22 members of the process church was a guy named Ken. He was from Australia. Ken was, and is his real name. As far as I know, he's still alive. Hmm. And he attended the, the group's rituals at Undermeyer Park in Yonkers. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible because that is a really hardcore group. They're a lot like satanic, like uh, SS members or things. You can read Timothy Wiley was number three in the group, and he wrote a book. Love, Fear, Sex, Death, I included in my book, Children of the Beast. But you really see the internal organization of that group was very hardcore. They were very limited, but they were almost like Jesuits in their intensity. And they wore all those black outfits and the swastikas and really nihilistic, uh, apocalyptic worldview. And uh, you can kind of see a lot of that, in, you know, in a lot of uh, kind of Manson's outlook and a lot of those crimes and stuff like that could be related to them, but they were a very tight group. You had to do things for like to get up in the organization. You had to be on an outer level for like one or two years, even before you moved up the scale. So they really kind of kept out people and you had to sift through people. But uh, yeah, it was interesting too, because when I was reading your book, the name Jim Rothstein pop popped up and uh, I talked mm -hmm. with him. And can you talk a little about what Jim Rothstein said about the events of Son of Sam? Oh, sure. Well, he he was a detective with the New York police, and he was investigating a case, I believe, in the late 60s. <clears throat> Excuse me. He went to Unermeyer Park and found the remains of numerous shepherds. He didn't know what that meant at the time. Later, he connected that to the cult's activities, but at the time, he didn't know why there were so many dead German shepherds in the park, you know. Um he later investigated a case in the early 70s where um, two boys, I believe 14 or 15 years old, had been molested uh, and killed in a Manhattan apartment. And he had an informant who was in on these activities to some extent and who provided him with information that... Um, there was a member of OPEC and there were a couple of CIA agents involved in the murder of these boys and that the bodies were taken to Connecticut and buried on a farm somewhere. Uh, so Rothstein found a lot of, uh, a lot of the really scary stuff. And again, this was several years before we had a son of Sam, you know, before there were any of these shootings. Um, 76, right. Right. There there were already things happening and had been happening for for a long, long time. And, and they all appear to have generated from this cult in Yonkers. Uh, that's that was ground zero. Uh, and exactly. Who was responsible for this cult at the beginning and who uh, who uh, dictated its activities and who, you know, where the marching orders came from? I don't know. We're, we're still that but it's it's a fascinating story but you did say i think you noted that the process had the 22 members and that correlates with the 22 members of hell right so you can definitely see if that numerical connection too and if for people who don't know or haven't studied the process church there's tons of pictures 
of processed members with German Shepherds. They're specifically a German Shepherd breed. So, and some people, I think, somebody said like, I think when you joined the SS, I don't know if this is true, but in Nazi SS, you got a puppy, a German Shepherd, and you would raise it, and then to go up in the higher order of the SS, you had to kill that German Shepherd. You ever heard that story? That's interesting. I've never heard that, but I, I, I'd like to know more about that. Well, I need to confirm that too. See if that's actually was really something that happened in uh, Germany. But uh, so you actually, but I mean, what's fascinating about your book too is you actually name names, names that I hadn't seen before. Can you talk about some of these characters like Peter Perez and uh, Suzanne Conway? Oh, sure. Um, and again, these were names I got from this this website SOS Cult that kind of. Um, um, It'll it'll be online for a while, sometimes as long as a year or so. Uh, then the guy who created it takes it down again. It's gone for several months, and it pops back up again. But it was this was really I mean I wouldn't have been able to do any research at all without the names that it, that he provided. So um, I found a lot of these names that Maury Terry made you know veiled references to a lot of these people in, in his book, but I didn't know the real names until I went to this to this web page. Um, but yeah, Peter Perez was, he was a member of the group. Uh, th this is the, the inner circle of the Yonkers group that met at Untermeyer Park. Um, he had a pretty extensive criminal history. And in fact, he was arrested, um, I think 11 days before the first Son of Sam shooting in 1976 for posing as a police officer and, uh, holding a gun on a woman and getting in a car with her and directing her to some place or other. But he, um, Peter had spent time in, in um, facilities for the criminally ill and he would, again, he escaped from a facility. In fact, while he was serving a sentence for this 1976 arrest and his, his family um, and acquaintances have a very colorful history in this story. They, they, <clears throat> um, Peter's sister was married to a Yonkers businessman who had some, well, he and Peter's sister both had some very uh, shady dealings for which there were at least uh, partial legal consequences later. But, but uh, Peter also was involved um, with a fairly famous regional murder at the time of uh, the murder of Anthony Wojcik, I believe is, is the pronunciation in Mount Vernon. And Peter assisted his ex-girlfriend, Patri Patricia Silverstein with this murder. I don't know how extensive Patricia's uh, connection to the cult was, but her brother, Norman Silverstein was very deeply involved in the cult too. Right, and you said that they, Berkowitz and Silverstein live close to another, one another. So you just see this group are really kind of in close proximity, the cars, Berkowitz and stuff. You could see how it could metastasize and, and have these interesting social connections between all these people. And you see, it wasn't Silverstein a gun runner too or something? He wasn't. Yeah, he, he, yeah he, he had trafficked some guns in from Pennsylvania and uh, actually in late 1977 led the police on a chase through Yonkers. Um, he, he was, yeah, he, he was up to his eyeballs in this stuff. He, that, that was his role in, in the cult. Um, and he also allegedly was at some of the, the murder scenes through the shooting scenes in, in Son of Sam, including the, the first one that, that Berkowitz did. Gotcha. 
And so, and who was Suzanne Conway? Because you have a picture of her in the book, but it's interesting to see these people because it just gives you an idea how how, how pervasive or what, you know how many people were really involved in this whole group, whether in the core membership or outside. But can you talk about her? Sure. Um, she was. She grew up very rough. She she had a, 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 just a sad tragic, violent background in, in her family. And she, um, she started to have like a petty arrest record. You know, she um, stole a record player and some other little small items from a neighbor in her apartment building when she was 17. Um, as she got older, the, the arrests started to be for more serious offenses. Um, she was, um, with guys who were, uh, you know, had stolen guns. She was with a guy who was arrested by the FBI in Florida. Later, she was arrested uh, along with her uh, common-law husband who had robbed a supermarket in Yonkers, things like this. And it, there are still, you know, blanks in her history with regard to the cult. But um, she, she's just another one of these people who um, – you know, you don't know how they found their way to the cult exactly, but um, it, a lot of the members who were involved seem to have come from um, poverty-stricken uh, backgrounds, and, and I, I'm, I'm guessing that, that maybe they felt the cult offered them opportunities that they weren't going to get anywhere else, you know, and they, they fell into it just for... Um, lack of anything more constructive in their lives, unfortunately. Right, they were kind of like shifts. Yeah, they weren't like driven or something like that. They were kind of interesting characters altogether. And you, I think Maury Terry said, and you wrote in your book, like after the Son of Sam events, like 20 people in that area had suspicious deaths. Is that true? That's true, yeah. Uh, nearly a couple of dozen people died mysteriously. Um, so it wasn't just the Carr brothers. Right, right. There were a lot of more peripheral people. Um, and and it, this brings up an interesting question is, is how did the cult determine who had to go and who survived? Because some of these people did survive. I, I've always been interested in that. You know, what was the determining factor there? I still don't know. I, I can't answer that. But um, yeah, so many of these people um, died in such bizarre ways in the couple of years after Berkowitz's arrest that it's really, really hard to chalk it up to mere coincidence. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's just a crazy story. And then you said in your book process closed up after the event, when did you, they turn into the foundation? Did you know the date of that? They rebranded, I'm, right? I'm not sure exactly when they became the foundation faith of God, but yeah, it was, um, it was at some point after the separation of Robert and Marianne de Grimston. Um, uh, there was something else too. the, the, the something or other church of the millennium there, there were several names, ways that they attempted to rebrand themselves after all the, the satanic stuff began to fall out of fashion. And there is, I think it's even in my book, children of the beast, the number three guy Wiley was holding some kind of really intense, um, Kind of occult meetings in New York City. I, I never connected it to the Son of Sam, 
but he was number three in that whole group, and he was around New York. I got to go back and look at those times. But uh, yeah, Wiley is an interesting character. He he also has made some claims about his uh, mother working for uh, British intelligence, um, which I think are interesting in 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 connection to the, to the larger story. You know, right. But, I mean, uh, these guys are all Scientology, ex-Scientologists, and uh, very intelligent. I mean, these guys were super smart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think they, they uh, with these people, I think it was a more studied thing. I, I don't think they fell into this activity by accident or for lack of anything better to do the way that some of the more unfortunate people in, in Yonkers did. I, I think this was a more studied thing. I think these people were, not that the people in Yonkers weren't groomed for this too, but, but they, they were groomed in a different way. Um, but yeah, those uh, process people were definitely around in New York. I remember there's a meeting between Timothy Leary and the process upstate New York that they were at the Hitchcock house or whatever. So they're, you know, they're around not in that specific vicinity, but they're around that area. There's a lot of stories about that, that I read. The, so, yeah, the, they were around and, and uh, Berkowitz admitted that he, Manhattan offices of whatever was left of the Process Church by that time in mid-1977 and talked to a Father Lars. Um, I've seen a photograph of Lars. I don't know what his real name was, but um, um, they disbanded, I believe, in late 1978 or early 1979. But, of course, um, cult activity in Yonkers continued after that date as it had you know, gone on for, for at least a few generations already. And there were still strange things happening locally in Yonkers after the process church folded in Manhattan. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so much more to the story. I mean, in, in Berkowitz mentions, mentions the process. I don't know if it was in the interview with Maury Terry or somebody, but he's in jail mentioning that, you know, it's, he says, Oh yeah, it's about the process. He mentions it. So pretty nasty stuff. And they had, and there was, you said that there were crimes after that. Can you talk about the deaths of Howard Green and Carol Marin? This is an interesting one. Yeah. That they were, uh, they were from Brooklyn. Um, they, there was a guy who lived in their building at one point who apparently was a drifter, sort of mentally ill and sketchy kind of a guy that who killed small animals for attention. And at one point, he accused Howard and Carol of being witches. Uh, and in late 1979, um, they turn up dead in New Jersey with all the blood completely drained from their bodies, maybe with a veterinary syringe, maybe with some other device. Um, but it was an interesting murder, still unsolved. Uh, the drifter who was wanted uh, by police in connection with the killing. Uh, I don't know if he was ever officially a suspect, but he was a person of interest. He was last seen in Oklahoma, or a scene where several cattle had been drained of blood. So there we get into the area of um, the, the cattle and sheep mutilations of the 70s that were associated at that time with, uh, you know, really crazy stuff like UFO sightings and stuff like that. I can't even begin to explain the connection between that and these post Berkowitz arrest murders, but, but there it is. There, there's the detail. This actually happened. It was covered in, in newspapers at the time. So, 
yeah, some of the craziest and most bizarre stuff happened actually after after Berkowitz was arrested. Um, yeah, and they never, I mean, it just seems like nobody ever made those connections except Maury Terry and the more current researchers that say, hey, this is all part of this whole larger story. What happened before and what happened after is just possibly as interesting as or crazy as 76, 77. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there were some really um, bizarre events that happened in 78 and 79. And even on into the early 80s, uh, suspicious deaths continued to occur. Right. What were the, was it Sisman and that girl also died? There, I think that Berkowitz talked about that in Manhattan. Yeah. That was, what, 81? Or was, something? Yeah, so, Halloween of 81, Ron Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman. Uh, he allegedly filmed or videotaped the the uh, the final Son of Sam shooting, the Moskowitz shooting, and he turned up dead with his girlfriend in in their apartment in 1981. Uh, this this was um, part of what the the creator of the SOS cult site called the Purge. Uh, pretty pretty accurate term. Very accurate. It was definitely yeah yeah he was part of the Purge. Yeah, really fascinating book. You talk about some other characters, Leon Stern and Raiden. I mean, for people who don't know, what were their kind of involvement in this whole situation? Well, Leon Stern, he was one of Berkowitz's defense attorneys. He was killed in his own home uh, by uh, someone who allegedly was a burglar. This was in 1982. We have another suspect who was killed much later in his home by someone who was allegedly a burglar in 1996. This is someone who may or may not have been Maury Terry's Mr. Real Estate, probably not Mr. Real Estate, but somebody who had CIA connections and probably was involved in the cult in some capacity. Um, I thought it was interesting that, that they both were killed in their homes by "Quote unquote burglars," you know, fourteen years apart. That that seemed like an interesting detail. Right, and Raiden's whole story was very lurid as well. Like his background, yeah. the Cotton Club murders, they called it. Supposedly, Menser. Did you ever find any validity of Menser being Manson too, and also being involved in the Son of Sam shootings? Did you ever hear that um, angle? I, I know. I know. Maury Terry was was he was very vehement on this point. He absolutely believed that. William Mincer was Manson too. Um, and I haven't found anything conclusive in that regard, unfortunately. Uh, but he, he was definitely a very sketchy guy hanging out with sketchy yeah, people. Mincer drugs, was a strange, murder, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and a convicted murderer too, we should point out so that, uh, know that his, the kind of activities he was engaged in were, yeah, yeah. He, he was, he was vicious. Yeah. Really nasty guy. Yeah. And, uh, there's a question here from Jessica. John, do you have any opinion on the murder-suicide that Maury referenced in the epilogue of The Ultimate Evil, that of James McIntyre and Billy Fitzgerald? Yeah, that, and that's a great thing that, that Jessica has done some fantastic research on. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the ultimate answer is there. Um, it, it, Berkowitz allegedly was, according to a couple of witnesses, I believe now, was outside the apartment building where this shooting happened. And one of the people involved said that the subject of Son of Sam came up it just moments prior to the shooting. This was a, 
allegedly were suicide. We, we think that the, the actual details of the shooting may have been somewhat different than what wound up being reported in the newspaper. But this was very shortly before Berkowitz's arrest. Um, and I, I wish we knew more about it, but, but this is, I, I believe, uh, and, and I know, uh, that Jessica believes this, that, that some major unanswered questions could be answered if we could find out what actually happened with, with regard to this shooting. And what, what, do you remember the exact date of Berkowitz's arrest sometime in 77, right? Uh, it was, uh, August of 77. And I just, I, yeah, I don't remember. So this that. was somewhere right around that time. Is right. This, uh, this, this was, I believe two or most three weeks before. Uh, but, but yeah, just, just right on the cusp of Berkowitz's arrest. And I believe by this time he already knew that he was being made the fall guy. So, so interesting. So he fully expected to be the fall guy before his arrest. Is that it, it sounds that way? Yeah. I don't know when word came down to him that this was, going to happen, but he, he knew, uh, having to address the fact of his, um, parking ticket and the fact that wheat car had spoken to authorities about him and his activities. He knew that something was going to happen and that it was just a matter of time before, before they caught up to him. Because I think if I remember the narrative, he didn't seem to be very surprised when the police showed up. Like he just said, "Oh, I'm your guy," or whatever. Right? right. He kind he of volunteered me. himself. He said, "You got me." Yeah. Yeah, he got me. So, yeah, he he knew that that um, that it was all coming down to him. Um, and as he said later, you know, he he took responsibility for all the murders. A because he had done two of the shootings, and B because he was staying loyal to the group. Right. Group, yeah, family members of its of, of its members, and he didn't want his father or any of his other family to be hurt. So uh, he went along and he took full responsibility for for everything. So yeah, great. Well, it's been a really interesting discussion. It's a great book. Again, the title is "Before Son of Sam: The Submerged History of a Yonkers Cult." You can get it on Amazon. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up or anything I missed or? Well, I just like to say, thanks for having me. I, I really sure. appreciate the opportunity to be interviewed. And awesome. uh, thanks to uh, my team out there, Jess and Manny and Max and Carl, and uh, really appreciate everybody listening and watching. And it's, it's, it's a pleasure to talk about the subject. And what is your social media or where can people, if they have any questions or anything, where can they reach out to you or how can they contact um, you? I don't really have a, a Facebook page or a, or a Twitter account or anything like that. My my email address is throwaways at yahoo.com. And anybody who wants to contact me there, I'd, I'd be happy to, to talk with them about the case. Did you say throwaways? Is that right? That's right. Throwaways at yahoo.com. So throw, I'll put that in the show notes too. So if people want to send Thanks. you an email. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So again, it's Jonathan Mitchell. The book again is Before Son of Sam, The Submerged History of a Yonkers Cult. So go check that out. Thanks again, Jonathan. Thank you, William. Thanks for All having me. Take care. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye.